Right. I wonder whether you ever look at what's going on in the church today, whether the, the representation of Christians on uh, TV, and you just wonder, have I got it wrong? Have I misunderstood what Jesus was about? Am I missing something? You see the, the intolerance sometimes. You see the hatred of Muslims. You see the hatred of homosexuals. You see the politics that Christians are getting involved with. You see the politics within churches. You see the rifts within churches and you wonder, have I misunderstood something? Should I be following these people? Have I misunderstood that Jesus is a, is a, was a man, was, was God, he was loving and peaceful and compassionate? Is, is the Bible actually telling us that we should be like what people see as the God of the Old Testament? Fire and brimstone, judgment, great acts that are happening in, in history. And we saw, you probably saw last week, I don't know whether you, uh, I wasn't here I'm afraid, um, uh, about Elijah, is, is that what you learnt about last week? Yeah. Okay. And uh, was it the story of Baal, the, the, the prophets of Baal, did you touch on that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And his, his battles with Ahab. So, put it, to put it into context, there was going to be a video. Um, after David, the high point of uh, uh, Israel, and then Solomon, the two great kings in, in, in Jewish history, the, nation, or the Jewish nation splits into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, that's a little bit confusing, and the southern, uh, southern kingdom of Judah. And there are many kings, all of the northern kings, unfortunately, walk away from God. And the southern kings, there are some good kings and some bad kings, and hopefully we'll see the video next, next week. Now, in the northern kingdom, God sends two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And we're going to look at Elisha. And what these prophets do is they say, go back to God. Go back to God, otherwise the time of Israel will end. And we're going to have a look at Elijah and see how that relates to what we're going to uh, talk about. We also note that uh, Elisha asked for, a, when Elijah was, was leaving, Elisha asks for a double portion of God's spirit, or the spirit of God that is in Elijah. But instead of doing great big acts, we'll see today that there are just very everyday stories. And actually, I want you to note that as, we, as I read today. I actually know that some people have been converted by reading the Bible and seeing that these are very simple stories. They are, there are no embellishments, no, no colourful descriptives. And yet, as we read them, they are powerful stories. So, the other second thing I want you to notice as I read the, this passage is just how familiar they will be. To those of you who know your Bible, how familiar they'll be. You may not have read this passage before, but some of it should be very familiar. 
Some of you already know what I'm talking about, but let's, let's see. So 2 Kings chapter, chapter uh, 4, we're going to read the whole of this passage. And there are these five little stories. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha told her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put, put there for him a bed, a table, a chair and a lamp so that whenever he comes uh, to us he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Kahazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or the, to the commander of the, uh, the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring. And Elisha, as Elisha had said to her, When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servants, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on the, uh, her lap until moon, uh, noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon or, nor Sabbath. 
She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to the servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is a Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And she, when she came to the mountain, to the, the man of God, she caught, him, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. The man of God said, Leave her alone. For she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do you not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment, and take my staff in your hand, and go. If, any, if you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then... The mother of the child uh, said, As the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child uh, lying dead on the bed. So when uh, he went in, and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hand, hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and once uh, walked once back and forth uh, in the house and went up and stretched himself upon the child. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. He said to his servant, Set upon a large pot and stew, a boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine, and gathering it, uh, it, fr- uh, his, from, it from it his lap. Oh. I've lost my place, sorry. Um. Yep. And gathering, uh, gathering from it his lap full of wild gourds, and came, uh, came and cut them into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. They poured out some for the man to eat, but while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in this pot, in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm from the pot. A man came from Baal, uh, Shel Sasha, bringing the man of God, the uh, bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But he, his servant said, How can I set 
this before a hundred men. So he repeated, Give them to the men, that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you've given us clearly your word uh, to teach us, to guide us to your character, to show us what your church should be like. Lord, we pray that your spirit is here, opening our hearts and minds to understanding uh, what you have to teach to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So this little passage is in the middle of Kings. Uh, No stories of great goings on here. Not even powerful generals. Um, But there are these five little instances where God reveals his power. Before we do that though, sorry, this is going to be another little passage, very short passage. If you want to, turn turn back to 1 Kings. If I can do this on my... I can't do this on my... Uh, okay. This is not... So 1 Kings chapter 19. And I'm just going to read a few verses from verse 13 to 18. This is just to put some of, the, some of this into context. So this is at the height of uh, the struggles between Elijah and Ahab. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face around uh, his face in the, his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And before, uh, before, uh, sorry, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, "What are you doing, Elijah?" He said, "I have uh, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword." And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So uh, Elijah is hiding in a cave. He feels like he is the only one left. And everyone is coming to kill him. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the, the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of uh, uh, Shaphat, of Abel (laughs) Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have bowed to Baal, and every month uh, mouth that has, uh, that has not kissed him. So you can see that uh, death is coming to Israel. The end is coming to Israel. But there are these 7,000 remnant. He's not alone. And sometimes God does that, that to us. When we cry out and we say, oh, we're alone, he provides someone there for you. You're not alone. So there are these 7,000 remnants. And actually, when we go back to 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, this is 
who this chapter is talking about. So if, let's, let's turn back to 2 Kings 4 because we're going to need this as we look for it. Um, so the first story is about the, one, uh, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, one of the 7,000, one of the remnant. She's been widowed and has two sons. A more vulnerable person in those days you could not find. We can note elsewhere how the Bible often talks about our duties to look after people, but especially widows. And it seems that this widow has accrued debts. So she's got two sons. She's trying to look after two sons. She's probably trying, uh, trying to find jobs as well. So uh, as one of the faithful does, she cries out to God. And more specifically in this circumstance, she cries out to the man of God. And in the context of this church, we should note that really that is what we should be doing. You know, far too often we try and find our own way around things, try and find human ways out of things. The church is there, and if you are in a struggle of sorrow or debt, then I would urge you, please come and see the church leadership. Because this should be a community. This should be a family. Let's have a look back at the passage. And we can see how far Israel has fallen, can't we? The nation that is supposed to be set apart. The nation that is supposed to be holy. The nation that has specific laws. Just solely, you know, so different from every other nation around. About hospitality. You can see in the, actually in the Middle East, all across the Middle East now, that, uh, that they mirror these laws from the Old Testament. So the Muslims take these laws from the Old Testament, the Jews take the laws from the Old Testament about hospitality, and they are so hospitable. How far Israel has fallen that these two sons are going to be sold into slavery that the community hasn't rallied around and helped out this widow. So, what does Elijah do? He comes and says, what can I do for you? Do you have anything else? Do you have anything? But she has nothing. She has just one small bottle of oil. Apparently it's supposed to be about perfume bottle sized. Elisha tells her to go and borrow vessels uh, from all her neighbours. Note that she has no vessels herself, no jars. She sold them all. She has nothing left. Then Elisha tells her to pour the oil into these borrowed vessels and to fill them up. Can you imagine what you would do if Craig told you to do that? Yeah. Probably some of you might shout, well, you're no good and try and find something else. Go and plead somewhere else. That's complete rubbish. And, and then kind of trash to talk to Craig. Say, what a joker. Okay. Or just leave. You know, British people are very good at walking with their feet. They'll just leave. You know, they don't like a restaurant. They won't complain. They'll just, okay, I'm never coming back here again. Maybe they'll go on TripAdvisor and say, that was a rubbish restaurant. They won't say anything to the manager. They'll just, they'll just leave. They'll tell all their friends how terrible it is. So they might just leave. So it takes a measure of faith, doesn't it, for this lady to go back to their ha her house and do this very strange thing. 
And he tells her to shut the door behind her. Does that sound familiar? Shut the door behind you. This is not Elisha's miracle. This is not Elisha's working. This is God. Now, the situation of the second woman couldn't be any more different from the first. But she is also part of this remnant. She is wealthy and noticing that Elisha is often entertained at her house, she uh, makes this small gesture of kindness and makes a room up for this holy man of God to rest. You see, in her own way, she is, she is standing up in a nation where Elisha has been rejected. Uh, this God has been rejected where it could get her into trouble, she takes the time to uh, support this man of God. She could get into trouble for it. If they come looking for her, her neighbours could say, actually, the man of God stays at her place all the time. So this is no easy thing. Um, and she is one of the faithful remnant. Now, when Elisha asks this Shemanite what he can do for her, she answers that there is nothing. She ha there's this strange phrase, I dwell among my own people. It kind of gives her a sense of uh, peace, maybe resignment almost, knowing the context, uh, context of what, what uh, she's saying. I dwell among my own people. And actually, that's what, you know, in some ways, that's what all, we can, all we can ask. We have our friends, we have our family. I'm at peace. That doesn't mean that we can't serve God when we've got all of those things. She's got all of those things, and yet she's willing to stick her neck out and serve God. So we have someone poor and someone rich, both willing to stick their necks out. But this time it's Gehazi who notices that uh, what she lacks. Now this is difficult uh, as a man to talk about, and I don't think I had an even clue about this uh, until a few, a few, few friends, uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, a couple of friends of mine uh, both came to me uh, and we were talking, very good friends of mine, and they opened up about how difficult it was that they were single. They found it difficult that, uh, now, I mean, I've been single for a long time, but just the depths of despair that they felt, that they felt they couldn't go to another, one of them felt they couldn't go to a, a wedding because they were single. Um, and they longed to have a child. One is a babysitter and uh, looking after other people's children and she's wonderful with children and she longs to have other children. And I've had friends who have had miscarriages and I can't, I can't understand uh, how difficult that must be, especially if it's if you've never had a child. Um, so, how much more must it be difficult for this woman who is getting on in years in this uh, society where the women were judged on their children? We see it with with Sarah, how. She laughs at the people who are telling her that she's going to have a child. The cynicism, the bitterness there. 
We see it in the battle between Rachel and Leah, how they're having child upon child, or rather Leah is having child upon child and Rachel is crying out. And she actually makes uh, Jacob uh, sleep with us, uh, the maidservant so that she can claim those children for herself and say, look at me, I've got a child. How difficult that must be. And with Hannah, we saw when we were learning about uh, Samuel's mother, how she wept and Eli uh, mistook her, you know, her weeping for, you know, for craziness um, before she gra- God granted her a child. And someone like Sarah, we can detect the, the, the cynicism in her response. Don't lie to me. Don't joke around with something like this. This is a difficult thing for this woman. You see, God sees and provides for her her hidden sorrow. But unlike Sarah or Hannah, we don't see this happening, what happens to this boy when he grows up. He's no special prophet or commander. The Bible doesn't write much about him. We actually don't know what happens to him. Uh, It's just to an everyday person. These are minor figures, and yet God is caring for them. Now, I must warn you that this story is not saying that God will provide children for those who cannot have children, uh, nor provide um, aid for every person in a desperate situation. We saw a couple of weeks ago that Joseph was, uh, was thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery, and then, after succeeded in Potiphar's house, he was thrown into prison. We've seen times of struggle and suffering, and we are promised suffering uh, as Christians. So, um, this is not a story to say, if you are not able to have children, God will provide children, uh, nor that you will get wealth or provision when you're poor. God has a plan, though. Uh, and God is watching, God is a, a God who answers prayer, and God uh, cares for his people. We see a glimpse of God's character here, working through his chosen man to compare, uh, care for his people. And note that these two stories are about women. In a society, I'm not talking about a Jewish society, I'm talking about this, this time in history, where women are not seen to be important. The account of women is not seen to be important. That's what's so special about the account of the women being the first people to see uh, Jesus alive. This is the account of two women who no one would care about normally. And they would be you know, set by the wayside, but God sees and it cares. Now the next story, especially, I think is, is important. With no descriptive embellishments, there's no fiction here, there's no uh, colourful descriptive. It's quite powerful, even just as the plain explanation is. This child is maybe five to seven. He runs out to his father. It's probably, those of you who've had kids, probably their cutest then, okay? They're probably just as their cutest, sorry, you're not at that age yet, yet anymore. Yeah, you, you passed that age. You started to become a, a difficult teenager. You know, um, 
but just five to seven, you know what's like. They are, they are sweet and cute, and they, don't, they haven't started to learn to argue yet. You know, they question everything. You know, he runs out yeah, just when you really wish you could freeze frame time and wish they would be like that forever. He goes out to his father and then complains about his head hurting. He's carried inside and sits on his mother's lap. See, there's no mistaking he's dead. No mother would make that mistake about their child. This child is dead. He is cold. It's, you know, mother, there's no way this mother can wake him. You, can see, you know that she's tried everything. Emotionlessly, she puts the boy on the bed and she prepares to go to Elisha. You can see in your mind's eye the state of shock that she's in. Nothing is going to deter her from what she's doing. And you do wish that the husband just asks that question. He is a typical man, clueless, isn't he? You know, just ask about your son. And she, but she's there, single-minded focus. She says, all is well. All is well. You, you've probably been, I don't know whether you've been in that situation. I know I have. It's just, I'm going to do what needs to be done. You know, I'm, everyone else, you know, I'm going to ignore everyone else. And she right, apparently it's 25 miles to Mount Carmel from where she was. And when Gehazi meet, greets her, she says, Everything's fine. All is well. She doesn't want to see the servant. She wants to see Elijah. There is no stopping her. And when she sees him, she grabs his feet and almost attacks him. Why did you give me this son? Did I ask for this son? She's angry, and rightly so. The thing that she longed for and probably had lost hope for finally came and just when the moment, yeah, the, the most dangerous part of a child's life, that first couple of years where he, he might you know, suffer and die, just when he's becoming part of a, yeah, seemed to be really part of the, li- a, part of, the life of, yeah, and the hopes and dreams are on this child, and he's talking to, yeah, to, to her, and she's teaching him. He's snatched away. So Elisha sends Gehazi ahead with his staff, uh, somewhat uh, reminiscent of the power of Aaron's staff or uh, Moses' rod, Um, but it needs Elisha to be there. And again, he shuts the door behind him. Elisha becomes another one of the the few, the small handful, that God gives the power to raise the dead. This is a significant moment in the Bible. There are five who raise the, uh, raise the dead. So this is a significant moment in the Bible. God is working through this man to raise the dead. And you might start to see the familiarity of this story. And if you haven't, then please go and read the Gospels again. I suggest specifically the raising of Jairus' daughter. Jesus shuts the door behind him and tells uh, Jairus' daughter to to get up. So we see a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
In fact, um, the people at the time of Jesus will have known these stories. As I've said in the past, the scriptures were their history. They were their songs, so their songbook. They were their, uh, their English literature lessons. Yeah, everything about their education would have been steeped in learning the scriptures. Any of their stories, their mythology, everything, they would have known these stories back to front. So when they heard of Jesus raising someone from the dead, they would have known these familiar stories. When they hear about wine being reproduced endlessly, overflowing wine being reproduced, they're thinking, that sounds familiar. This is God at work through his chosen man. So we're looking at it in kind of reverse. We think, that's familiar because it sounds like Jesus. The people at the Jesus time would have thought, that sounds like Elisha, one of the great prophets. He's come again. God is here. He is working. <coughs> God works in these small pockets of miracles um, around his chosen man. Then the next two stories um, are about provision, and these should be really familiar. And there are tons of hints. The first is healing, uh, the healing of poison at the time of famine. Uh, the food is scarce. Not knowing what he's done, one of the men goes out. Uh, note that they are the sons of prophets. These guys are sons of prophets. So again, 7,000, the remnant, the faithful goes out and puts some unknown herbs. Now, the experts, I don't know how they know this, but the experts uh, say that it's a certain plant which uh, is, is very dangerous because it causes diarrhea. And you can actually see, kind of see that now, now knowing that, uh, shouting out, there is death in this pot. It's pretty grim, isn't it? Uh, they know that death is coming because at time of famine, diarrhea, you know, something causing diarrhea will cause death. So, um, and Elisha tells them to put flour in it, and that's another ridiculous thing, isn't it? Flour is never going to, to heal the poison, and ask them to eat it, and they are healed. Um, and this final thing, a man brings 20 loaves of barley. A boy brings Jesus five barley loaves and two fishes. 20 loaves of barley, and they are multiplied to feed 100 men. Five barley loaves and two fishes feeds 5,000, not including women and children. What Elisha does, Jesus does tenfold, 50-fold. 100 men to 5,000 men. You see, God cares for his people. These people in famine, he cares for them. So how does this apply to us? The question is, how does it apply to us? This is the faithful remnant. This is those who put their trust in God. We should be asking ourselves, what should our church be doing? What should our church look like? What does our God look like? How can we, as a church, mirror the character of God? Well, the answer's in here, isn't it? We take care of the poor. We look after those who are suffering. 
We weep with those who are weeping. We care for those who are alone. We feed the hungry. We're a family, we're a community. Last year we read Acts and we saw God, uh, the Church of God uh, looking outwards. Evangelism is very much on his agenda. He cares for the lost and he wants to bring them into the family. But let's not also forget that Jesus and Paul spent much of their time building up the church, building up the, for those who are faithful to him. God is a God who is compassionate. He cares about his people and he is a God who answers prayer. So if we're going to be a church that mirrors that, we should be a church who is known for our compassion. We should be a, no, a church that's known for being a family. A few years ago, uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time told me to uh, just had a real go at me and said, you really should be shirt serving in church. And I was of the opinion, oh, God has asked me to minister to my school. And that is my ministry. I'm going to go along to church to, to, to feed and learn uh, and, and be in fellowship. And then I'm going to go to, uh, to serve in my uh, school. Uh, and reluctantly, uh, okay, I'll sign up for serving the food. Yeah. And then I started leading a Bible study and doing the PowerPoint at the big church. Uh, and I realized that by serving the church, you are serving the community. You are becoming very much part of the community. You are not part of the community unless you give to it. And it was a revelation to me. This was only a couple of years ago. And since then, I've, I, you know, I, I see the importance of the community of the church. We have to be a family. And how can we be a family? And how can we serve one another unless we know one another? How can we be a family unless we serve one another? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. It's not new. It's, it's part of the, the great commandment. You love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. This should be us the sign to outsiders. Now cults use this very powerfully. They, they, they smother lonely people in warmth and fellowship and bring them away to, to, to weekends away. Unfortunately, they bring them, take them away from their friends and family, and that is the sign of cult. They try and draw them away from this. But shouldn't that make us ashamed that these people who are you know, so Christian, plenty of Christians go into cults, these people who are Christians are not part of a family where they feel they belong. Shouldn't that make us ashamed? And we have lots to learn from cults, not to draw them away from their friends or family but to, to be that family for them. So welcoming that they can't, you know, they feel they belong. I went on a recent uh, um, uh, NSET day, training day, at a Positive Schools Conference. And these are, these are non-Christians in Singapore who are saying that the biggest factor in a child's mental well-being that a school can do is give them a sense of belonging. Actually, they said that the biggest factor 
for a child, a child, a child's mental welfare is friendship. But a biggest factor for the school is a sense of belonging. And this is non-Christians saying that. How can we claim to be a church, a community, a family, if we don't do better than that? Provide that. Love one another. Talk to one another. Keep one another accountable. Be there for one another in times of debt and sorrow and hardship. You see, Elisha, with these five little stories, where God is showing his power and showing his character and showing his compassion, he is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And if that wasn't clear enough, it's in their names. Elisha, El, which means God, is God is salvation. That's what Elisha means. God is salvation. Jesus, Jesus, in Hebrew means, so God, Yahweh, Jesus, saves. God saves. Elisha, God is salvation. Jesus, God saves. So, ignore the way when people say the God of the Old Testament is very different from the God of the New Testament. How can they say that? They obviously haven't read this passage. It is mirroring the same God. The God of power, uh, compassion. The God who looks after the little people as well as the big things. When you read the account of Jesus' ministry, his heart for his sheep, those who God has called, it can be hard to reconcile that with what's going on in the church today, in churches, not just in the big church, in churches. But with Elisha and Jesus as our example, it should spur us on to be better to love one another more, to be a better community and to be a better family, to do away with the hate. Yes, we stand strong against sin, but we show it as Jesus would, in a loving and gentle way. Let me pray. Father, we pray that uh, those who see us can see, cannot see the, don't see the selfish sides, don't see the side where we're living for ourselves, don't see the cold, uh, the emotionless side, but see the compassion, your compassion, your love through us. Lord, teach us and help us to love. Help us to desire to know you more so that we can know what love is. Because you said that by loving us, we know what love is. To be prepared to die for one another, to die for this church, as your son Jesus did. Lord, teach us to be a family, your family, molded in your image. We thank you for the example of Elisha. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, everybody. Great job.